I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Welcome to The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan, and with me today is uh, a wonderful, wonderful writer and friend named Jeff Abbott. Jeff is a New York Times bestselling author of over 18 novels. Is it over 18 novels, or is it 18? I think we're at number 19 with the new one. With the new one is number 19. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's the winner of the International Thriller Writers Association, and has been a, uh, a numerous uh, nominee for the Edgar Award. He lives in Austin, Texas, and we're really happy that he came to Miami because, Jeff, the last time you came, you were scheduled to come, and you had a horrible catastrophe happen. It's great to have you oh. without that catastrophe. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me back. I really, really appreciate it. It's great to finally be here. How's how's the house coming? It's it's going well. The catastrophe that Mitchell is referring to is um, my house was struck by lightning um, about ten days before my previous novel Blame came out, and I I had to cancel um, the the uh, about half of my book tour. Um, but our house burned uh, as a result of the lightning strike. It was it was a big one. We had one of our neighbors saw it as they were driving back towards our neighborhood and said, wow, that is a massive bolt. And then as they got in to pull into their driveway, they could see our house was just completely encased in smoke already two minutes later. So um, we were all at home when it happened. My boys were upstairs 
Whoa. It blasted through the roof, into the attic, into the guest bedroom, and set it ablaze. Uh, and they put out that fire with their cousin, and then, um, but the the roof and the attic were already were already burning. So well, thank uh, God it didn't strike anyone. I mean, that's it didn't it didn't strike anyone, and um, it was you know it was kind of surreal that literally one minute. I mean, I was about to walk outside. My wife had just put some dinner in the oven. We'd come in from being out in the pool because the weather had turned so dark so quickly. Uh, And then this lightning strike, it rained for five more minutes, and then the sun came out. And so the neighborhood turned out and kind of watched the firefighters fighting the fire. So yours was the only house that was It was the only house that was struck, and it was the only house, fortunately, the only house that burned. Remarkable. Did you feel like playing the lottery afterwards? No. <laughs> I was like, wow, uh, I feel special. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of a, it's just such a shock. Um, and I had a, this, the, the Three Beths, the book that I'm out promoting now was due. And I was about to go on the road for blame. And it was just, you know, it was really hard to leave my family right then. My oldest son was about to go off to college. Um, so believe me, we it, all understood. Yeah, it's just a bizarre kind of uh, mental state that you're in. So, um, um, but we're doing really, really well now. We mo- we rebuilt on the same foundation, and we moved in back into that house two days ago. And um, uh, I think I slept the best I've slept in months, even back in this new version of my bedroom. Uh, uh, and it was funny we let our two dogs in, and they both went to their old spots You're in the kidding. house. In the re- in the house is slightly redesigned, you know, to be a little bit more space efficient, and we wanted to make some improvements. But they both went to the spots that there were their nap spots. And I was like, I, I, I was like, this house can't even smell like the old house. You know, first there was a, the normal house, then there was the burned husk that stood there for however long, right. and 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 then and, you and, tore down the and rest then of that it. was all torn down to the ground, and we built a new one, and the dogs went right to their spots, and I was like, okay. I'm very <laughs> curious as to, so you decided to kind of try to recreate as best you can the old house. Was there some thought about trying to do something radically different? Well, the second floor is different uh, than the first floor. Um, we um, we have a stone exterior now. We had brick. The house was built in 1991, and and during the era of extremely arched gables <laughs> and arched entryways, and right. all that is gone. Uh, so it's 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 definitely a more modern look uh, to the house now than what it was before but we kind of got the layout of the rooms on the first floor very very similar so that's what cracked me up about the dogs they were like okay well yeah this may be different paint different wood i know where i belong that it, do you have a, do you have a, a writing room that you write yes. in and My, so what did you do with that uh well before the fire i had built an office above our garage and we had kind of thought that part of the house might be spared and then the, the fire investigators found er, even every the weight bearing joists under my office burned completely. The fire just went through the walls. Um, and so that didn't, that didn't make it, that got torn down. And so now, uh, I have an office upstairs just inside the house, which I, I think will be really nice. And you're able to sort of make a custom space. Yeah. For yeah. Yeah. It'll, that's, it'll be good. That's great. Do you actually kind of leave for the day and go up to your office or 
Well, I we've been in temporary housing for 16 months, so I've just been my wife and I have been sharing an office, um, which is uh, not ideal. Really, more for her. <laughs> I'm not easy to work with, um, but uh, yeah, it, it's we've sort of made do. I've I've tried to be productive throughout this whole. Is whole your wife process. writing as well? Or? No, no, she's a photographer and she's a teacher, and uh, uh, so she's not in the office as much as I am. But then you're still sharing an office you're sort of back to back is like what are you working on what are you working on you know um we enjoy each other's company a lot so it's 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 fun but i think she's gonna be she has her own space in the new house and instead of a ceiling fan she has a disco ball because the electricians heard her say she ought to have a disco ball and she wasn't going to do it and the electricians got together and got her the cat lights and she got a disco ball on amazon and it rotates and so she so said, "You guys have some wild nights up in the office." Yeah, she said at Studio Fifty Four there at our house. Um. <laughs> now, Jeff, are you? I, I never knew this. I mean, I know we've known each other for years, but are you originally from Texas? Is that where you're from? Yes, I was born in Dallas, um, and when I was about six months old, uh, my family moved to Austin. So you're an I, Austonian, if I, that's what they say. Uh, Austinite. An yeah, Austinite. An Austinite. So, um, yeah, I'm about as close to native-born Austinite as you can get. My wife is a native-born Austinite. Wow. And that used to be a lot more common. Of course, Austin has just exploded in growth. It's the 11th biggest city in the country now. So, um, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of the, I'm the, I'm the rare animal. <laughs> Tell me, did you go to University of Texas as no, well? No, I went to Rice University you in Houston. Uh-huh. My wife went to UT, though. She yeah. did. So were your parents involved with UT or? What, what what made the move to Austin? Uh, my dad took a job with Southwestern Bell when they had the regional bell all companies. The, all the bells. All, all the bells. Uh, and he worked for them for years. And um, my mother was a buyer for a, uh, a high-end ladies boutique in Austin. There was only the one back <laughs> then. Uh and uh, she would regularly go to New York and, and buy clothes and bring them back for the moneyed ladies in Austin. So tell so, me what the biggest... very madman. You know, no, no, Austin <laughs> is now, you know, I mean, there's everything from Keep Austin Weird. Yes. I mean, Austin City Limits, uh, all the food trucks in Austin. Yes. I mean, people have this sense of Austin as being... I mean, it almost has entered our consciousness the way Portland has ent- entered our consciousness. So, what is your Austin like? What, what do you? Well, what my do you Austin, think of Austin was my Austin is kind of the same as everyone else's Austin. Now, the Austin I grew up with was much, much smaller, barely two hundred thousand people. Uh, we didn't have a freeway on the west side of town. You just went down one of the main thoroughfares. I remember when they opened the first big freeway other than the interstate that ran through over by UT in the capital. And it was a big deal, you know, because we wouldn't have to drive on streets that had stop signs anymore. Um, and uh, uh, I remember when the technology companies came. Before they came, you know, there was this one stretch of road, and they called it, because Texas Instruments and, and 3M had an office there, they called it Research Boulevard. Well, then all these Californian companies started moving in and bringing in scientists and engineers and... So there was a lot of cool stuff in Austin's identity that people moved here and wanted to be part of. In the DNA of Austin. In the DNA of Austin, and they wanted to preserve that DNA. So a lot of people, I think, have tried to adapt to Austin and not change Austin. Um, I think that's just going to get harder and harder as it 
turns into a bigger and bigger city. Um, it's going to be a challenge. But I think Austin still has very much its own identity of being more laid back, creative, you know, diverse, open to lots of new ideas. Uh, it's not a stick in the mud town. Um, and, and the effect of the university and the fact that it's the state capital, what, how does that resonate? Well, I think that's, those are two major strands of the DNA. And for, for a long time, those have been two of the major employers uh, of people in Austin. Um, and so a lot of the people who've come out of UT want to stay in Austin. They don't want to go take a job in New York or L.A. Uh, and uh, so then they start companies in Austin. You see a lot of that entrepreneurial spirit coming out of there. Um, and, and then in government, you know, people have long careers in government and then retire and find new and interesting things to do in Austin. So so the population went from 200,000. What is it now just about? Oh, my God. It's over a million in is the it? metro area wow. now. So, yeah. And so what was your journey from University of Houston? I mean, from Rice back to Austin. Why did that happen? Uh, did well, you study English at, at I Rice? I was a double major in English and history. And I thought I was going to go to law school. And then I worked for a law firm for a year after I got it. Well, the day after I graduated from college, my parents told me they were divorcing. And it was a very acrimonious divorce. And I had no idea that they were getting a divorce. And so they're like, so you're going to go off to law school? And I'm like, well, you know, if y'all don't want to have to stay married, I don't know that I really want to have to go to law school either. <laughs> you know, uh, it's like, we're all doing our own thing now. Okay. You know, so I thought I put off law school for a year and I went to work for a law firm. And I thought, I don't want to go to law school um so i had uh i was a sales rep for a publishing company a textbook publishing company prentice hall which is the largest sure. textbook publisher and they sent me off i was in uh, colorado then i was in omaha and then i came back to, to I, I had a choice i was getting promoted and there was an opening in boston and an opening in austin and so i went home your story is i actually went to law school for two years and after going for two years, I was an English major who didn't know what to do, went to law school for two years and then stopped yeah. <laughs> and then got into the book business. That's hard to do. Two out of the three years. It I was mean. hard. But I had this, this overriding feeling that if I finished, the pressure to practice would have been really great. Sure, sure. And so I said, yeah, I'm just going to not do it. So, so where did this come from, this, this desire to write? Was it? From the beginning, were you always a writer? As a kid, were you a writer? And I think it came from my grandmother. She taught second grade in this little East Texas town of maybe, I think when she was at, the, at its peak, maybe 1,400 people. Um, when she died, they closed the entire town down for her funeral, except for the bank and the post office, which were required by law to stay open. And I remember in this church, there were 700 people in the church, and they had to have tents set up outside. Whoa. And the minister said, how many of y'all did she teach to read? And all hundreds of hands went up. She taught oh that whole my. town and their kids how to read, you know, because that was back then. Second grade was when you learned. And she had this giant Dick and Jane book. This was in the days before each kid had their own textbook and she would have it on an easel and point and take the children through learning how to read. So she was an inveterate reader. She had all sorts of books. She loved Victoria Holt and Phyllis Whitney. She loved romance. She loved Agatha Christie. She loved um, uh, Josephine Tay. And uh, she got me reading. 
and she would let me read anything. Now, did she live near you in She Austin? lived about, no, she lived about three hours away, but we right. saw her a lot. And um, uh, uh, I'm actually named for her. Her name was Jeffy. Because in the South, if you just put an IE on a boy's name, it's a girl's name all of a sudden. <laughs> so, um, um, and she was the oldest of 10 children. And so it was this large family in that area. And I was used to going back and hearing all their stories. And uh, when I, I said at one point I wanted to write stories. And so she got me a Big Chief tablet and a Husky pencil and wow. told me to write them. How old were you at that point? Oh, um, I was about probably like in second second or third grade wow. and uh i just i just you know i just read a lot and i just had this imagination and she encouraged it you know sometimes they try to stomp that out in kids and and she didn't and when did you realize you could was it leaving law school getting involved with the book publisher that you realized you could make a career out of it in that way i i had um my stepfather asked me once I was working at Dell Computer in Austin, and I wasn't really very happy there. It's a wonderful company, but it wasn't uh, my job there wasn't a match for me. And he said, "Well, you keep saying you want to write a book. How long would it take you to write a book?" And I was like, "You know, I don't I had no idea." And he said, "If you had full time, how how long to write a book?" I said, four months." And he said, "Okay, quit your job, and I'll support you for four months while you write your book." Well, guess what? It takes longer than four <laughs> months to write a book. So he supported me for four months. Then I got a job part time, and I finished the book. And the book was terrible. It was so bad, but I finished it. I had a ninety thousand word manuscript that was so bad, but I learned a lot in writing it. And the very next book that I wrote, well, I would then was get it a, a mystery. It was a mystery novel, and I would I I went back to having a normal job, but I would get up at four a.m. and write for three hours before I got ready to go to my you knew day you job. Could do it. I knew I could do it. And so that was the gift that my stepfather gave to me. That manuscript will never see the light of day. And the next book that I wrote sold. What a great, great story. What was the next book? That was Do Unto Others. That was that my was first the, novel. That was yeah. the first novel. Yeah. Unbelievable story. Um, and that was about how many years ago? That was about 20 that years ago? That was 1994. Wow. Which is hard to imagine. So it's about, it's like 25 years ago, just yeah. about. Yeah. Well... You look like a kid. <laughs> well, Thank you know, you. You've, you then began a whole series of series, basically. Mm -hmm. you, know, um, you know, when people think of you, they think of the Sam Capra series, for instance. I think, I think there's a, I read a review that said something like, uh, uh, Jeff is one of the greatest writers around, and I just can't wait for the next Sam Capper novel to come out. And I think a lot of people feel that way. I know I felt that way when I read Adrenaline as well. So tell me the genesis of that. And where did, where did the idea of writing in a series come from? Were they from people that you read? How did that come about? Well, writing the Sam Capra series came about a suggestion from my British publisher. Because I had done a number of standalone novels, written two earlier series... Um, and then I wrote like five standalones and my British publisher said, would you think of doing another series? And I said, well, if I had the right idea and they said, well, think about what an idea would be. And, and they weren't trying to say, go write a series, but they're like, think about it. Just think, you know, maybe you could alternate between a series and a standalone. And, um, 
you know, Casablanca has always been one of my favorite movies. And I, I, I thought, who would, who would he be now? Who would Rick Blaine be now if he owned a bar? And, and the bar was sort of this nexus of intrigue. And I started thinking about, well, what if you had someone who was an ex-CIA agent and he somehow came into possession of a number of bars around the world. And I thought, well, I could set each book in a different city where he owned a bar. And it started to you know, take some sort of foundational shape in my head. But then I was like, well, how does, you know, how does he get a bunch of bars? How do you own, you know, it's like, it just seemed. And I thought, you know, I don't have to answer everything at once. I can, I can sort of lead people into this and not have that be part of the story of the series as how did he get all these bars what what is he involved in now right. um and uh that was that was great fun and the most fun i had researching any of the sam novels was coming to miami uh when i wrote inside man which was my 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 modern take on king lear with a miami crime family uh but i had the best time my wife and i came to she comes with me on the research trips when i go to a new city to uh, to research Sam Capper, she's my driver, so she can drive around, and I can take all my pictures right. and take all my notes and get to to interview people that I want to talk to in each town. Uh, and we just loved uh, getting to come to Miami. Um, it's such a wonderful city. So. Well, I I implore everyone listening to this to pick up Jeff's uh, book, and you can start with Adrenaline, I guess, right? Yeah, Adrenaline, Adrenaline is Adrenaline. the first in the series, and it is just really it was a wild ride i remember reading it and uh you know even all the parkour scenes what did that you know was that something in your i'd seen parkour in in movies and on youtube explain what that is it's it's a highly physical form of of motion of running of vaulting over obstacles using gravity using jumps um, if you've seen Casino Royale uh, with James Bond at the beginning of that, the, the guy he's chasing is France's champion parkour runner, and you know, so it's kind of a, this combination of running and gymnastics. And I just and I thought, you know, I have this younger hero, younger than than a lot of them. He's in his mid mid twenties. That's a, that's a younger man's sport so i thought i'd have him do it and i thought it was fun and and there is a lot of le carré in 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 that series i mean it's it's so beautifully done and and thought about and then you went on to write a bunch of standalones and another series as well yeah tell us about that well the uh standalone well the newest standalone is the three beths um which is a suburban suspense novel about a young woman whose mother has gone missing for about a year and society has sort of decided that her father is guilty of this crime, although there's no evidence. And she's torn. Um, her name is Mariah. She's absolutely torn between loyalty to her mother, Beth, and loyalty to her father. She just knows it can't be her dad who did this. And then a friend of hers who's a crime blogger and has a podcast um, <laughs> mentions that there's another woman named Beth who had vanished in the Austin area. And she, Mariah, grabs onto this thread. Maybe there's a connection. Why are women named Beth vanishing? Then she finds of a third one who seems to have gone missing. And she starts to, to try to find the truth about her mother, knitting the story of these three different women together. Um, so that was the book I wrote in the aftermath of the fire. Of the fire. Yes. No, it's, <laughs> it's fascinating. Oh, well, and, thank you. Um, 
We're in with The Literary Life, and we're going to take a minute to break. And uh, this is The Literary Life, and we'll be right back. Let's talk audiobooks. Just like podcasts, everyone's listening to audiobooks. If you haven't taken the plunge, it's about time to give them a try. They're the perfect way I've found to get more books into my increasingly busy life. I can listen to them anytime, during my commute, walking around the house, or just working out. Even when I walk my dogs, the wonderful Alonzo and Charlie, or when I'm just sitting in the most comfortable chair I can find. And all I need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Bookstores like ours, Books and Books, they offer more than 100,000 audiobooks, including those from the New York Times bestseller lists, as well as the IndieBound bestseller list. Enjoy your first audiobook for free at Libro.fm when you start a monthly membership and take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. That's Libro.fm. L-I-B-R-O dot F-M. We're back. You're listening to The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan, and I'm with the wonderful Jeff Abbott, whose new book, The Three Bets, has just been published, and he's here at Books and Books to give a reading um, after 17 months, <laughs> we're back. Was it 17 months was the last time you were going to be here, I think? Yes, yeah. yeah. So he's back after uh, <laughs> 17 months, and we're really happy to welcome him tonight. And I know, uh, to be honest, that um, Jeff's books are so cinematic. And um, I personally experienced going through the whole world of cinema with Jeff when we, our company, Mazer Kaplan, optioned uh, Adrenaline, hoping for it to become one of another 30 films. <laughs> um, and the world of film and television has changed so much since the time that you and I were mm -hmm. involved. Why don't you talk a little bit about it and what's been happening with your books since we our initial conversations? Uh, well, thank you for saying they're cinematic. I, I try to make them that way while still keeping them a book, if, if that makes sense, because they're very much a book. They're not a movie, but I, I, they often sort of play in my head like a movie while I'm while I'm writing it. Um, you're, you're right. I mean, so much, it used to be people would come to you to talk about your novels, talk about my novels with me in terms of features. And now it's more in terms of television adaptations or things like that. So, uh, my novel collision, uh, is under option. They have a script written, uh, which I read and they'd done a very good job with it. Um, for television, for film, that's for, for film. film. Um, I have a short story that I wrote. Um, uh, <laughs> that was funny. A, 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 a friend I'd actually gone to a, to to um, um, the uh, uh, the screenwriting class um, that's sort of famous. That the guy that was AFI. Or? No, no, it's uh, I'm just blanking out on his name because I'm Sid Field. No. The one that was talked about an adaptation, uh, Robert McKee. Yeah, Robert I'd gone McKee. to his class and I ended up sitting and having lunch with a guy who was also a published author and had had a, a, a novel optioned by Steven Spielberg called Robo Apocalypse. 
and he was doing a, a short story collection of robot apocalypse stories, which is not really in my wheelhouse. But um, he, he, he emailed me, he goes, I have all these sci-fi writers. Will you be my token suspense writer? And I was like, well, sure, why not? And so I wrote a story, and it, it was sort of funny. It was like an ex-CIA agent after a robot apocalypse uh, trying to save the world. And that got, has, that's in, that got optioned by some, a big production company uh, that has a, a deal with a major network. And they're looking to develop that. Um, I'm not really involved with that, but I wish them luck with it. Uh, and then, um, most recently, uh, my novel Panic had been long been under option with the Weinstein Company, and I was adapting it for television. And then, um, the all, the fan, all right? the all the allegations against Harvey Weinstein came up, and uh, the company has gone into bankruptcy, and. Um, but I, 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 that was just, you know, everything connected to that is just awfulness. Um, I did write a pilot, though, and that was an interesting experience to have done that um, for a production company. Um, and I would like to do some more of that um, in the future. It's very Did you different. enjoy the writing process? I did of enjoy the... the writing process. It's so different from doing a book. I mean, and I think people think it's like, oh, you just sort of take the page of the book and reform oh no it's not that at all it is so different um but i felt like it exercised a bunch of other muscles in writing that i don't get to use so much you have to rely so much more on dialogue you can't you can't you know you can sort of describe everything but too much description in a script just sort of where's Where's it's, it's, the it's hard to have an internal life. Yeah, as well yeah, you can't, you can't really do that. It's, it's a challenge. So, um, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the process of learning how to write the pilot, um, and to to think about adaptation, to think about how do you take a standalone novel. And Panic was one of my most successful ones. It especially did very well in Europe, mm -hmm. um, in, in Britain, um, and, and turn that into an eight-hour television series. And also to take those characters beyond where they were in the book, because that's the pressure now is, okay, what would season two be, right. you know, if you're thinking about doing television. So And it's about creating a world in you which do. all these characters are kind of independently moving it. Oh, exactly. You know, we used to think about world building as something that was reserved for for Tolkien and Anne McCaffrey and, and fantasy authors. You know, you look at Le Carre, he completely built a world in, in, in the espionage genre. Um, yeah, you were, we're all having to do world building when we're thinking about how we expand the scope now, of our books. Has this seeped into your writing of novels at all? I know that you said before that you want your novels to be a novel, and they're, yeah. they're not screenplays. So have you been having to temper some of what you do when you write to get yourself back into the novelistic mode? Um, there might have been, right after I finished writing the, um, the, the, the pilot, I think I was <laughs> doing a lot of writing going, wow, this whole page is just dialogue <laughs> and, you know, which can be fine and, and, and necessary if it's, if that's the right, right. tone or right moment in the story. Um, I was like, you know, I might want to mention what, you know, what, what else they're doing, um, 
yeah, it can seep in a little bit, but it's it's you know I think there's sort of novel mode and TV writing mode, and you just there's sort of a little bit of overlap, but you're I'm being I'm always so conscious of my audience. And the audience of a novel and the audience of a TV show has some overlap, but what the purpose of in that moment that you're writing for that audience is different. So, um, you know, it's 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 a challenge, but I I enjoy it, and you know, I think writers have to take whatever opportunities they have these days. Well, and, and so I'm sort of eager for those new experiences. And, and a lot of writers complain about having to communicate with their audiences outside of the novel. But I notice both through Twitter and through your website, there's so, they're so much you, that your voice is in them so uh, articulately that I wonder if that's something you've cultivated and something you're comfortable with. Well, I think there are some authors who are really, really good at Twitter. I don't think I'm one of them. I think I'm sort of medium good at Twitter. There are some authors who are bad at Twitter and need yes. to get off it. <laughs> um, but I think that's just because, you know, it's weird when I hear people saying, you know, my publicist or my editor or my agent was insisting I be on Twitter. None of mine have ever said that. They have always said, do it if you're comfortable with it. If you're not comfortable with it, don't do it. Because sooner or later, you're going to rue the day <laughs> that you got on it. And, um, you know, I, I try to use it as a tool to communicate with people who are really interested in my work. And, you know, it's, it's, I've seen people pick up my books because of it. And which is nice and, and become more devoted readers because they encountered something that I said or someone forwarded something that, or retweeted something that I said. But, you know, it's it's um, it's one of those things you don't want to get sucked into that world so much that you're neglecting the actual craft of writing and right. the actual discipline of writing. But there is something gratifying knowing that you're not that you're writing and that there's an audience responding to it. I can imagine. I can only imagine what that feels like. They they will respond to it. Yeah. No, and they know your characters probably better yeah. than you do, right? Well, it's some of it's, them. Some of them. You know, it's 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 funny. I I mean, I feel really bad that I've written these two standalones in a row because people are asking for the next Sam Capra, I get it pretty steadily on Facebook and on Twitter, on, you know, private messages or emails. And, um, I, I promise them. I'm, so that begs I, I the question, what's I next? Going, <laughs> I am going to write another Sam Capra. I'm going to figure out what the timing of that will be. I, I want to do it as the, as the really right return to form for him as a character. Um, Could you see yourself getting involved in writing the Sam Capra TV series? Could you see that happening? Oh, sure. Sure. Good. Yeah. <laughs> should, Good. There, should there be one? Well, um, but, um, um, we, we would love to revisit that one day, <laughs> I think. Um, you know, it's, it's, I think he actually would be a character who would be really strong for television. And obviously I'm biased. But, you know, if I don't cheer for my own character, who will? I agree um, with you completely. But he, there's, you know, he, he... So many of the characters in the espionage field are so alienated and alone, and he's a family man. He's a young father. He has connections back to the regular world, um, and those are points of strength and weakness for him. And he's just, there's no one quite like him out there in that particular subgenre. And so um, 
I've always just been delighted to write him. I love writing him. I love writing Mila, his partner in crime. She's a great character. Um, I could easily see doing a book with her as the lead more than Sam. Um, I've thought a lot about that as well. Because uh, I think you want to try to do things that are surprising and maybe hoped for, but but not expected. Um, and she was always a character that, that people reacted very strongly to. Oh, she's to. a great character. Yeah. Wonderful character. Tell me about tell me about you, and tell me about uh, some of the authors that have influenced you and your reading today. Oh goodness, authors that have influenced me. Well, you know, um, when I started reading mysteries, it was all Hardy Boys, and they were 180 pages, and my parents could time me down to the minute how long I could read one on a car trip if we were, you know, not not if I wasn't interrupted, and I worked my way through the whole series. And then I graduated to Agatha Christie and Niall Marsh and um, uh, John D. MacDonald. Um, uh, someone gave me the Deep Blue Goodbye. Oh, boy. Yeah, you know, and I was like, there were more, and, you know, Sherlock Holmes. Um, uh, uh, but now, you know, day, nowadays, I love reading the classics. Um, yeah, I wrote an essay for CrimeReads.com about losing my library in the fire. I had over 2,000 books mm. that I had collected through uh, my life. And, you know, my like the original box set of Sherlock Holmes I got as a kid, the first hardcover I bought with my own money I'd uh, saved up, which was Stephen King's The Stand. It was twelve ninety five. Uh, that was a lot of money to a kid, you know, for 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 babysitting or weeding or whatever I got paid for. And, uh, um so most most of my books are gone, um, the ones that I had collected and loved. Um, but you know the people I enjoy reading right now, like Harlan Coben, is a favorite of mine. Uh, Laura Lippman is one of my favorite authors. Um, Dan Stashower does a fantastic job writing nonfiction. He uh, just his last book about the first assassination attempt on Lincoln's life, I think, is super timely. Mm. Um, and compelling. Uh, um, J.T. Ellison is a thriller writer from Nashville I really enjoy reading. Uh, Ace Atkins, Megan Abbott, Jack Pendarvis is a short story writer from Mississippi who's really an interesting writer. He won an Emmy for writing uh, for Adventure Time, the cartoon show. Um, he's just incredibly clever. So I'm always reading. No, that sounds I'm great. I'm always constantly and reading. And we love to get people's recommendations. Yeah, so yeah. thank you for that. Um, Jeff, this has been delightful. Thank you so much. Thank you Thanks so for much being for having here. me. And I thank everyone for listening to The Literary Life. Till next time. I hope you like what you heard and that you'll please share your review on Apple Podcasts. And also give me your feedback at Books and Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to my weekly conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Revolver.com. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. Thanks for joining The Literary Life.